Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting local. We're talking about localization. We're talking about what does it look like to take a game and then put it in a different market, take a game and change it just a little bit, maybe change it a lot to sell it to different folks around the world. We're talking to Muhammad Al-Qadi from Cat Iron Arts. Muhammad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, man. I'm, I'm a huge fan. It's an honor to be part of this podcast. Awesome. I really appreciate you listening. I'm excited to, to talk about these things. You know, we're, we were just talking before we hit the old record button, and uh, this is some cool stuff that you're working on that's maybe a little different than what people traditionally think about when it comes to localization. So I'm, I'm pumped to kind of get into what you're doing, what you're working on, how you're seeing things from different angles. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, well, uh, my name is Mohamed Al-Qadi. I'm a game designer, founder of Cat Iron Arts. It's the uh, first and only publisher in the UAE in one of the very few in, in the Middle East and Arab world, uh, which obviously makes us uh, unique. We bring a different perspective to the industry. Uh, but what also distinguishes us is our ethos. Um, our whole mission is to bring positive change to the world through our, our board games. And uh, we do so by enlacing every board game with an educational component. It's very subtle. You don't pick up on it when you're playing. It feels like any other board game, but it's always um, based on some learning outcomes that have been tested and that we believe are important and, and can change the world in a positive way. Um, a little about me, I'm, I'm from Abu Dhabi originally, uh, which is about an hour away from Dubai. I've lived all over the world, uh, the US, Canada, Jordan, uh, did my master's in the UK from Oxford University, uh, came back here and been working for 15 years doing almost everything from uh, private sector, non-for-profits, senior positions in, in government. Uh, currently, I have two other full-time jobs. I uh, run a $300 million philanthropic fund, which I was tasked with setting up uh, about three years ago, which included you know raising the money and, and deploying the funding towards uh, educational innovation projects, uh, things like teaching coding to kids or you know funding cancer research. Uh, my other full-time job is running the KIC, which is a technology incubator here in the UAE. And what we do is we take tech startups and we we bring them to the market um, through coaching and guidance. And obviously that helped me a lot when I, when I was setting up my own uh, businesses in the past and, and this uh, particular business. Um, how I got into the board games, man, I, I've been into gaming since I was a kid. I'm so passionate about gaming. Um, love playing Arabic uh, card games, um, chess, you know. The usual, the, the monopolies and risks of this world, but my passion was was really in video gaming. I love video games, uh, sports uh, games, uh, shooter games like Counter Strike. But the thing that really I'm really passionate about are strategy games. I love strategy games, Gabe. I mean, I have um, probably played every single one of them, and uh, my favorite's Total War. And when I got into board gaming, um, I just felt like I had this vision of what a, a strategy game should look like. I'm, I'm not a wizards and orcs kind of guy. I, I, love, I love realism. I love things that are based on reality. And I thought that, you know, I had this vision of a, of a board game that was, that was authentic, I think is the best way to describe it, whether it's the artwork or the gameplay or the rules. And I went for it and, and here I am talking to you today. Uh, you know, we're, we sell in over 30 countries, uh, mostly focusing in, uh, on the Arab world and, and Asia. Yeah, very cool, man. All right, you you have a few things going on, and so like, what what really drew you into <laughs> designing though? Like, were you just like super stressed? And you're like, I'm gonna, I need a, like a hobby. I need a stress reliever. Like, what kind of? Because a guy like you with with all these different, you know, you got hands in every cookie jar. It seems like, <laughs> and so like, how in the world do you balance it all? And and like, what really drew you towards games when you could be doing so many other things? Yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I have done a lot of other things that I probably didn't get into. Um, I started a couple of other businesses in the past, sold them, created uh, created my own nonprofit. We've I've taught forty 
underprivileged kids, taking them through university. So I, I do a couple of other stuff. I, I've written books before, but with gaming, it's it's man, it's it's a passion, and it really came out as an. Um, I feel like it's a way where I can unleash my creativity. A lot of the jobs that I am I'm, I'm in charge of, you know, I manage, you know, a lot of money. I, I can't be creative with it. I have to be very safe and very secure. And I'm a creative person. And um, gaming per se was something that just clicked. I, I did it once. I started with just like many board game designers. I started with a, a few prototypes and some paper and and some markers. And it just, you know, it gets me into a zone. The best way to describe it, if I if I lose money every year doing designing games, I'm still happy because it's something that that fulfills me. Um, it's something I, I really love. And uh, the other thing is, I think it was just an opportunity. I've always talked about designing games, whether it's video games or others. But it was um, it was Ramadan uh, this year, and, and Ramadan's a month that that's really slow in 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 the UAE. Everyone gets together in people's houses, and we play board games, and I just couldn't take playing risk anymore <laughs> I, I just you know it's a, it's a nice game but it, it, it just it reached a level where i just couldn't play it anymore and whenever i tried to introduce a new game to my friends it was just too complicated for them you know and so this challenge hit me of can i create a, a gateway game that was easy to learn but very complex and very deep and very engaging where you can play it a, a hundred times and and still have fun so it became this personal challenge and it grew from there it, it became something that I, you know, associate with myself. I feel like game design is, is become part of my ad- identity, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Something similar I ran into. So I had a job many years ago where I'm a very creative person as well, but I wasn't allowed to be creative because the the leadership that I was underneath, they were very risk averse. They didn't want to try anything new. They knew certain things were broken and were messed up, but they but it, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't kind of thing. And so like I wasn't allowed to do a lot of creative things. And so uh, I, I was there maybe a year and a half before I was like, you know what? I think I'm done. But <laughs> during that year and a half, I, I desperately needed uh, an escape, a, a way to be creative. And board games were such a wonderful way to, to do that and allow me to still be creative and problem solve and, and those, those kinds of things. And so if you're listening to this, and you're like, man, I really am, am struggling in my job. You know, I can't be creative. I want to do these things. Well, I think board games are a great outlet for that opportunity to, to be creative, figure things out, try new things, have some fun, and uh, maybe maybe start a company along the way. Who, who knows how, <laughs> how it works out? Uh, now, let me ask you this before we get into the topic. What is the market like for board games in the United Arab Emirates? Like, can you go to a game store? Can you go to these you know big box stores and buy Ticket to Ride and Catan? Like, what does it look like for yeah. you as far as games? No, I mean, it's, it's thriving. It definitely... Um, it's not as developed as the Western world. I think we're we're catching up, but it's growing really, really fast, um, and it it's been growing for a lot of a lot of years now. It's becoming much more popular. There are a lot of game stores here. the The most famous is a, a place called Back to Games, which is like the mecca of of board games here in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, and they were very helpful when when I started my company. Um, but you know, you can go into the Virgin Mega stores and so forth, and and buy the titles that you mentioned. But Back to Games has like about, I think, 3,000 titles, so you can get anything out there. You can also obviously purchase everything on Amazon and and a couple of other um, e-commerce providers here. So it's quite easy to get your hands on a game. Um, But I think it's a different market in terms of the consumers. I think most people here are into lighter games, party games. There aren't um, as many hardcore gamers in the UAE as other places around the world. And it's, it's a market that's developing. The other thing is the, the macro situation in the Middle East as a whole has been has not been great over the past few years, as many of you probably would have seen in the news. Um, although Abu Dhabi and Dubai are, are very safe places and prosperous places, we're a small country. There are about, I don't know, 10 million people here. Um, so, you know, if, if you're a publisher or if you're a, a distributor, you require access to the big markets, uh, markets like Saudi and Egypt and and Iran and, and, and all these countries that have a huge population. And and that's currently um, not, a, not a great opportunity, at least this year, because a lot of these markets are, are suffering from, from some of the political turmoil. Having that said, even with all these handicaps, it's still growing and it's still, it's still doing quite well. 
Yeah, very cool. Now, are the games in English? Are they in Arabic? Like, tell me as we get into localization. Yeah, and, and tell me, tell me kind of how the languages work out as far as the games you have access to. Yeah, I mean, the UAE. Uh, people think about the Middle East as as one entity, and it's so different. The UAE about I was telling you, I think before the podcast, about ninety percent of the population is foreign, and about seventy percent don't speak Arabic. So English is actually the, the primary language in the UAE, believe it or not. And so most of the games here are. English, right? They don't need to be localized from a language perspective. But if you go to a place like Saudi, your game will not sell unless it's in Arabic. Um, you know, a, a large part of the population just don't speak English. It's the same thing in Egypt, Gabe. I, I know you visited Egypt for a while. You probably have noticed that. Um, you know, uh, it really depends on which market you're talking about. But language is extremely important for certain markets. And and Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, is, is such a such an important market because you have about 30 million there and they have high incomes relatively and so if you're not able to localize your game in 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 arabic language you're not going to sell very well and you're going to miss out on a a pretty big market yes definitely something to be aware of as far as what region you're trying to get into what are the cultural things and and let's get into that you know like you mentioned i I spent some time in egypt had a great time met some amazing people just really uh, appreciated my my time there and, and so it'd be really cool to be able to reach out into these different parts around the world that have amazing people, have people that just would love to play some amazing games. Like you're saying, risk is fine, but maybe there's a little bit better way to do it. <laughs> and so you're going to need to localize. But let's get a good little working definition. What does it mean to localize? What is localization exactly? Yeah. Um, so the way I would put localization as, um, and before I get into that, maybe, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned here that I've lived across the world. I've lived on probably four continents. And what you notice is humans are very similar, but there are stark differences between people living in different regions and cultures. Um, and, and thus, when, you know, when, you, when you're talking about localization, what you're trying to do is you're trying to adapt your product to that specific geography or region. That's that's basically it. You're trying to give that product an altered look or an altered feel that um, people in that region can relate to. Ultimately, you want them to feel like this was made for them or even preferably by them. And localization is not a, a an unusual concept. It's actually quite popular. So if you look at, for example, I don't know, McDonald's, and you compare McDonald's from around the world, their menus look quite different from, you know, the UAE looks very different from the US. It looks very different from a place like India. Um, and, and we're not just talking about the language. We're talking about the actual menu, right? The, the food that's there. If you look at... Um, uh, news channels like CNN or BBC or Sky News, they have, a, you know, if you watch BBC Arabia or Sky News Arabia, or CNN News Arabia, I mean, the news you get is completely different. We're not even just talking about language. We're not even talking about anchors that are that are Arab and, you know, by by origin. They they actually present different stories and the stories that they present, they present them from a completely different angle. One would say perhaps a a more biased angle, uh, depending on which region. So, you know, companies have done this for hundreds of years of localizing content and adapting it in the best way to basically increase their sales. Um, And and that's localization, I think, is a working definition, is is the, the adaptation of a product to a specific geography. Yeah, definitely. And it's important to realize how many different industries localize. Like you're saying, if you come to McDonald's here in Honduras, you can buy fried chicken on the menu because people here love fried chicken. And McDonald's saw that as an opportunity to sell more than just hamburgers. You know, but if you go to other places around the world, they don't even sell hamburgers at all. Like you're saying, <laughs> I think it's in India and whatnot. Yeah. And so I think the movie industry is another one. You know, they will make adaptations. They'll make changes when they take a movie out of the U.S. market and send it over to China or send yep. it to another part of the world because there's different cultural things to be aware of. There's certain things that are offensive to some cultures that are not offensive to others. And so if you want to be able to go worldwide and make as many sales globally as possible, you have to be aware of these things and, and not just changing the language, but also changing other things about your product or your service to to fit that specific Area Now, what are some of the reasons? I think money is obviously the main reason, but what are some of the other reasons why it would be good to be thinking about localization, especially from the board game side of things? All right. I mean, let me just say this. I think board games are way behind other industries when it comes to localization. Let's be frank uh, about that. I think we haven't scaled it and we, we haven't tapped into the potential of localization that, in my opinion, can create millions of new customers. Um 
you know, if 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 I look at, for example, uh, Board Game Space, which is the biggest distributor of board games here in the Middle East, um, they actually are working with distributors, uh, with publishers, excuse me, to to actually localize board games here in the region because they realize it not only increases sales, as you mentioned, but it um, improves the the gameplay experience uh, in a massive way. So, you know, when we're talking about sales, Gabe, if, if you'd allow me to dig deep into that, the, the way you increase your sales is, is twofold. One is you increase your, your market size. And, you know, if more people can read your rules and read your cards and understand how the game is played and, and be able to play it, then you automatically have a bigger pie to start with. And then you can increase your sales better um, in a different way by outperforming your competitors. You know, we don't like to talk about competition board game um, industry, and, and I understand that, and we're a very friendly industry, and I, I love that about board games. But, you know, if someone has $100 to spend, they're going to have to pick one of, one of the games on a, on a bookshelf or on a game shelf. And, um, and if your product looks more relatable, if your product looks more tailored towards that consumer, you're more likely going to that, get that $100 than someone else. And so you increase your sales in these two major ways by I- increasing the market size, but also within that pie, getting a larger share of it. Um, and, and then the other thing is, is, as I mentioned, is bettering the gamer experience. And here, what I mean by that is, you know, your second language could be English and you might be reading the game. And I've seen this, you know, live here in the region and you don't enjoy the game as much because when you read the manual, there are certain words or there are certain phrases or there are certain elements of the game that you don't understand or you don't like as much because they're not tailored towards you. Um, or it takes you, you know, longer to, to understand the rules because they're written in English, just as a, as a very simple example. Um, and as such, that customer will like your game less. Uh, it'll lead to not so positive word of mouth, and that will reduce your sales in the future. So it, it does go back to sales in terms of gameplay experience at the end of the day. Um, but it's also about you know how you want your product to be perceived, uh, what kind of quality, um, what kind of feedback from, from the customer eventually. Because apart from sales, that also impacts your reputation, but it also impacts you personally. If you're like me and you're doing this to make people happy, uh, and entertained, it, it doesn't feel very good when you know that a lot of people are not enjoying your product and it's something you could have fixed by uh, localizing the product um, uh, slightly um, and, and, and improve that customer experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things, if you're, if you're trying to go bigger, then you just need to be aware of this, right? This is a huge potential around the world as these new markets are opening up. You know, the, there's more people in the middle class of China than live in the United States, yeah. right? And there's so many people around the world that are just ready to play some amazing games, just like we were and not that long ago in the States when all these Euro-style games started coming over and, and you know the world was open up to us. That is happening all over the world and at a really interesting rate. But the question is, can you get out in front of you know the, the localization part of things and, and really be, be there to to take advantage of the, of the potential when it, when it does hit. And so let's talk about traditional localization. What, what have publishers done historically as far as localization? And then we'll get into maybe some new ideas coming up. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to apologize for anyone who's done more than what I mentioned. I obviously don't know what every single person has done uh, globally. But what I've seen, at least from the region here and, and some other regions that I've lived in, is localization has been equated to translation. Uh, more or less, that was the major focus: is how do we write the rules and how do we write, you know, the text on the cards that you're using or whatnot, into a language that um, that people uh, in that region can understand. And you know, language is extremely important, but I think we'll we'll get to that later in the podcast. That's that's just part of it. That's just scratching the surface. That's the majority of games, to be frank. That's the majority of effort has been going into language and translation. Um, There are certain examples of people going further. And the best example I'll mention is Monopoly. I know a lot of listeners like to to hate on Monopoly. But um, to me, Monopoly is the most successful game of all time, no matter how much uh, you like to enjoy it or you you don't. 
it simply is not just from a sales perspective, just from the fact that everyone knows what Monopoly is. Most people around the world, even non-board gamers, have played it, and they've done some amazing things to enhance their access even further. So I was talking to to you, Gabe, uh, before before we recorded, and I was mentioning how we just launched Monopoly Dubai a couple of months ago, and it's such an interesting concept because instead of you know, and this is you know localization in in a different way. It's actually in English, Monopoly Dubai. It wasn't translated into Arabic. But what they did was they replaced all the the properties on the board with properties that, you know, exist in Dubai. Uh, Assets like Burj Khalifa and um, and Dubai Marine and and downtown Dubai and so forth. And that led to a a huge surge in, in Monopoly sales because now people who are living in Dubai and people who are visiting Dubai thought that was really cool. All these cities or all these places that we're going to, um, you know, they can have that. And it's, it, it's more fun owning, you know, a, a place that you that you live in than, you know, some distant place in London, right? Uh, Piccadilly Circus or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and the great part about Monopoly Dubai, and it's a discussion I had with you, Gabe, as well, is, is um, they made money out of it, not just from sales, but from, from sponsorship. So they went to the biggest developers and said, you know, who's willing to, to, to pay us so that we put your assets on this Monopoly Dubai game? And so they generated a completely different source of revenue of sponsorship um, that, that increased the, the profitability of this particular product. So I think that's, that's a new way of looking at board games and, and a very successful way of doing so. It's such a cool angle to start thinking about. And again, there's, there's just so many different options when you when you start putting these new ideas on the table. Now, the traditional way that, that I'm aware of is, okay, I've got a game in English and then a publisher or a company from another region, let's say France, China, something like that, will reach out to me and, said, and say, hey, uh, we want to localize the game. And basically you you sell them the rights. You might do some kind of partnership, but it's usually a partnership with a region-specific company. Like, for instance, my game Hunted, a company in China reached out to me recently and said, hey, we want to do a Chinese version of the game. And that's cool. And so basically, whenever things get ready for print, uh, they will send in their uh, translated versions of all the cards and the rule book and all the different things. And so that'll all go to print together. And then their Chinese games will go into China with Chinese language and all that kind of thing. And then all the other games will go around the world. And so, but what you're talking about is, is, are you working with other publishers? Are you doing it, doing it yourself and just thinking through the, the different regions? Like help me understand that angle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what we do as Cat Eye and Arts is we actually um, do not work with publishers in other regions. I mean, we, we sometimes work with individuals or um, other types of organizations uh, but we don't work with publishers. We actually produce all the content ourselves. And for you to understand why and how that works is uh, the, the main product that we launched that Cat Iron Arts was built upon was uh, a, or is a game called Conquer Final Conquest. It's a really cool strategy game that I, that I talked about at the beginning of, of the podcast. And when I created that Conqueror branch, I always had this vision, this brand would, you know, the, the one that you see in the market today is the international brand which talks about a time period, a third century BC. Um, you know, it has Rome and Carthage and Egypt and Persia and all these nations that everyone's familiar with and a time period and a, and a place that everyone's familiar with around the world. And the idea was from that brand, that same rule set, um, you know, we would take 70 or 80% of that, uh, modify it in ways, and we would create um, sub-brands that target different regions. So, for example, in the Arab world, we would, you know, give the name of the product an Arabic name, but with the same feel and the same brand of the Conquer um, Final Conquest brand, and it would the the story and the historic setting would be set in the Middle East uh, rather than you know Europe and the Mediterranean. Um, the background would be on something that. Um, you know, uh, the Arab world is interested in, in terms of the time period and, and the kind of conflict, conflicts that were happening during that time period. Same thing, you know, we have a, a plan to do one in China, which will tackle the Three Kingdom kind of period. Uh, in Japan, the Shogun t- kind of period. I was just, um, you know, we were just discussing Gabe, ideas for the US. And for me, I wanted to actually do a futuristic conqueror 
Final Conquest brand for the U.S. that looks about looks at what would happen if if the U.S. broke into different chunks and pieces, and how these new states would compete against one another. Um, so so that was the idea, and 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 the reason we didn't want to reach out to another publisher um, is because. You know, I, I part of my background is I love history and I, I love military strategy, and I have a very strong background in e- each one of those timelines and regions that I've talked about. So I don't, I don't even have to do research or contact someone. I can write up the entire content myself um, for these elements, and then the UEE being such a diverse place with thousands of, of you know, thousands of people from from hundreds of nationalities, um, you can actually source someone in the UAE to translate the language if need be, um, without even having to work with a publisher in, let's say, China or Japan or, or Europe or so forth. Um, so part of the blessing that we have in the UAE is we have uh, 162 nationalities living here. Uh, and so, you know, um, you'll always find the right talent here locally. You don't have to source it from abroad. Yeah, very cool. And so tell me some more things as far as how you're changing the game a little bit to make it, you know, different for the reasons, you know, the art, graphic design, iconography, those kinds of things. Like, tell me about that side. Yeah, man. I, I mean, this is, I think, the, the important part. So, you know, we've talked about uh, localization, but what to me, I wanted to revolutionize the, the way we do localization in five different ways. I think if you really want to go local, you got to think about five things. Uh, the first we've already talked about, which is language, and it, it's definitely important, um, but but it's just one out of those five pieces. The second piece that I alluded to uh, is story, and the reason why story is so important, it actually came when I released the Conqueror brand. A lot of people in the UAE came up to me and said, Muhammad, this is a great idea. We finally have a publishing company in the UAE, but why ancient Rome? Why not something closer to home? The, the major criticism that I received here locally was uh, that people wanted uh, a time period and a conflict and uh, and something that's more relatable to them. Uh, and story, I think, is is so important to get it right, which is why I talked about you know doing the three kingdoms in China and and in the future kind of um, uh, America kind of situation is. Uh, if people can relate to the characters of the story, if people can relate to that that particular geography of, of that particular time period, then they're much more likely to be vested in, in that product. Um, you know, I, I was listening to your podcast, Gabe, uh, a couple of months ago. I think you had a guest, if not a couple of years ago. I completely lost time. Um, and I think, it, you know, that person had a game about the American Revolution. And it sounded so fascinating. But in the back of my head, you know, I never actually purchased that game. I, I love his historic games, but I never did. And I think part of it was I'm just not interested in the American Revolution. Um, but, you know, if, if you hit something closer to home, I, I, I might have definitely, you know, picked up a copy. So that's, that's another element is that story component. Um, the third element is the artwork, which you alluded to, like the iconography and, and, and so forth. So there are two things that I would look at in terms of the artwork. One is the style of the art. So for example, if your game is based on abstract art, for example, that wouldn't work very well in certain places. You know, abstract art is more popular in certain countries and quite unpopular in others. You know, you'll always find people who appreciate abstract art, but just the prevalence of which will, will vary between different countries. So the style of the art that, that you kind of have, even the colors, you know, if you're trying to sell in India, you, you got to be very colorful about, about your art pieces. Um, that's very different than, than other parts of the world that um, maybe color isn't, isn't uh, appreciated as much uh, in terms of, you know, when it's extremely colorful. Um, the, and, and then the other component of the artwork is, is the characters themselves. And I'll give you an example. Another product that we have is a climate change game, and it's being published in September. And part of our revenue model is sponsorship, kind of like what Dubai Monopoly did. And so this this game is about um, building your country and you purchase projects. You know, you get money and you purchase projects and those projects make you more money and and you purchase even more projects and you implement them in your country. And the idea is you're trying to become the first country to reach a certain level of prosperity. But the trick is every one of these projects has a carbon footprint 
that's increasing global warming and affecting all players. Um, and so, you know, we, we're actually releasing this in schools. It's going to be taught in schools as one of the education tools. And when I pitched it to, to one of the companies here, uh, because I wanted uh, their assets, their real estate company, so I wanted their towers and so forth to be represented on my board and get a fee for that, uh, they looked at me and, and they, they pointed towards some of the individuals that were on, on, on the board game. And they said, they all look Western. Don't you have any Arab-looking guys? You know, um, you know, they're all white. They're all wearing jeans and or or a suit. There isn't a, a single um, uh, female, for example, wearing uh, you know the traditional black dress or or an Arab male wearing the traditional white dress. And it's something that really caught my eye. And I said, "Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right." And it's it's such a small part of the map that you you wouldn't even you know, notice it. And so, you know, when you're talking about art, you need to do everything possible to make every part of that that artwork that you have, whether it's the board or cards, um, localized. Um, you know, and, and I mean every single part. You really have to have this attention to detail. And then the the fourth part, which most people and will will find this shocking, but also the gameplay. You can actually localize gameplay, believe it or not. And I found that out when I was talking to, you know, the the owner of of this of this distributor um, company that I told you about, um, board game space in in the Middle East. And I was talking to them, and um, the guy told me, "Your game will do well on Conqueror." And I said, "Why is that?" And he's like, "Because people uh, in the Arab world love bluffing. They love games that have bluffing in it." And I said, "Is that true?" And he said, "Yes." And and you know that's not necessarily the case in every region of the world, but games that have a lot of bluffing do very well in the Middle East. Um, it's it's you know based on experience they've seen it over over the past few years. So you know you could have that conqueror brand that sells globally, but maybe the localized version that that sells in Saudi Arabia, or the UAE, or Egypt, can introduce one or two extra game mechanics that increase. The level of of bluffing that you can do during the game, and that will enhance the game experience. That will in turn make the game better, and and people will buy it more often. Or, for example, you know, we were talking about how the Middle East is maybe a little bit behind other uh, European countries in the U.S. when it comes to to board gaming and and the sophistication of of gameplay here. And um, and so, you know, one of my main things with Conquer was I wanted to make sure the rules weren't so difficult. You know, I wanted to make sure they're not more difficult than, let's say, Settlers of Catan, uh, because I, I knew that if I was going to target this region, the rules had to be much simpler than what you would uh, target in, in somewhere like the U.S. where they're, or, 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 or Europe, where they're more used to Euro games that are much more complicated. So that's that's gameplay. So just you know, we, we talked about language, we talked about story, we talked about artwork, and we talked about gameplay. And then the final thing is the promotion channels. Gabe, they're so different in the Middle East than than anywhere else, and I'm guessing it's it's different in China and it's different in other parts of the world. So I'll, I'll give you a statistic that I saw I found on Board Game Geek. Uh, only one percent of users are from the Middle East. I don't know how out of date that statistic is. But it's it's really low, given that the Middle East has about 400 to 500 million people uh, globally. And so, if you actually, I want you to do an exercise as a listener. Just Google "Conquer Final Conquest" on, on Board Game Geek, and you'll find only 34 ratings. Um, we have sold close to a thousand copies, and we only have 34 ratings on on the website because most people who have bought the game or have even tried the game and haven't bought it yet don't have a Board Game Geek account. They don't even know what Board Game Geek is. So if you're trying to reach the Middle East and you put a banner on Board Game Geek, that's not going to that's, that's be very beneficial. Um, you know, uh, probably you know, a good time, for example, to market in, in the West is right before Christmas when people are buying gifts. Uh, in the Middle East, it's actually more towards closer to Ramadan because that's the time where everyone kind of doesn't go out and spends a lot of time at home. And they're looking for things to do. And board games is one thing that, that they look at. So you want to time your releases with Ramadan. Um, another like interesting thing is Twitter, for example, is very popular in the GCC. You actually can market your board game through Twitter here in the region. And that sounds like a horrible idea in the US, right? Um, and I can go on and on, but 
every market has a, has a different channels, different ways, different messages that, that you can get your game out there. Even after you've localized the game, you need to localize your messaging. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example in the UAE. If you get, you know, His Highness, uh, you know, the leader of the UAE is so loved here and genuinely loved um, uh, by everyone. If you get him to to get a hold of your board game, you'll probably sell a, a million copies the next day, <laughs> right? Um, so it, it it just the world works very differently in different parts of the world, and 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 you got to be um, very in touch with that um, when when you're promoting the game. Okay, so many different things to be thinking about, being to be aware of. Now, I can see one of the main objections, though, for people listening to this and publishers listening to this, they're going to say the cost is the cost. There's so much cost if you're having to change art. If you're having to go out and, and hire a translator, if you're having to tweak different things, that's going to create longer playtesting, whatever. So they're thinking about the money side, the cost of it. So help me understand or help maybe answer some of those objections that a publisher would have as far as the, the cost of all these things coming together. Is it, is it going to be worth it, I think, would be the main question. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a very valid uh, drawback. And it's, Gabe, it's not just the cost in terms of the money, but it's the time and effort that, that it takes, even if it's not going to cost you much. Just the amount of time and effort to rewrite a story or redo the artwork or you know, um, add some new gameplay features, it, 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 is, um, it is daunting. And to add to that, if, if, if you'd allow me to do so, Gabe, um, there are other drawbacks. There are things like um, sometimes people favor the original. Sometimes people think that the localized version is a cheap knockoff um, and, and they want to buy the Monopoly with the, with the London properties rather than, than the Dubai properties or the, you know, the Turkish properties or whatever country that you're in. And the other thing is, you know, you could actually confuse your brand positioning. If, if you have a very different games in different markets, people might not be able to relate that they're all under the same brand and, and you have brand confusion. So all these comments are extremely valid and it really boils down to this, Gabe, exactly what you just mentioned, which is, is it worth it? And, and the answer is, it depends, like everything in life. You, you really need to kind of study your product and, and see. So I'll give you an example. If, if your game is a heavy, heavy Euro game, that you know has a market potential of selling two or three thousand copies, and you're thinking about localizing and selling in the Arab world where people are not used to heavy uh, Euro games, then it's absolutely not worth it, right? It's absolutely not worth it. Um, you, you're not going to sell many copies here, even if you if you localize it. You're, you're just going to have to invent a, a completely different game. But if you have a game, something like I don't know coup or exploding kittens or or something that's quite easy to to uh to play and and that is a party game and that's that usually does very well in the middle east then it's absolutely worth it but you have to you have to kind of do the assessment you know you got to grab a pen and paper and start scribbling some numbers down and putting the cost down and 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 talking to distributors here and seeing you know how much how much more money would you get by localizing the game? And, uh, you know, that could go up to, you know, you could sell double the copies in a particular region or triple the copies, depending on how well you localize. Uh, or you can just be stuck at, at where you were. Um, so I, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer to that. It, it is really a case-by-case -case basis. But my advice is you, you kind of need to put on all the numbers in terms of the cost and, and the time and, and the effort. And then on the other side of things, kind of study very well whether that region would be where you can multiply your sales there and, and it's ripe for localization and make a decision accordingly. Now, do you have any advice as far as how to do this research? Any websites yeah. I could go to? Any, any like As far as finding these numbers and finding this information, this data, what do I do? Man, and I don't, I'm not aware of, of any websites, unfortunately, but the best way to do so is to talk to a local, I would say distributors, not even publishers, honestly. Um, so, uh, you know, if you talk to major distributors in a particular region and, you know, you have a, a good working relationship with them, um, you, you can capture some some good sales data about maybe perhaps some competitors that have localized and how that has enhanced their performance and, and draw accordingly. Um, another option is to test. 
So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of testing, um, piloting. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, instead of trying to localize in 30 different regions at the same time, you take one region that you're very confident about, or at least, you know, you, you're, you find extremely promising um, that matches your game and, and you believe it has high potential. And, um, you know, you might speak to distributors there and so forth, but I would test in terms of, I would actually a speak to the consumers there. Um, if you don't know the language and you don't know anyone that's there, you know, you, you don't have the advantage of living in a place like the UAE, then that's when you should reach out to a, a publisher or a game designer or even a, a market survey company. Uh, do your market research, pay uh, the extra bucks, have um, you know a focus group uh, done, have a, a questionnaire done, a survey, whatever it is that you want. And you can base your, your data accordingly. But if you're looking for hard sales data on localization, well, A, it doesn't really exist, but B, um, it, you know, the localization, the, the, the type that I'm talking about is untested. It's uncharted waters. So you're not, you're, you're not going to find much. You're, you're going to be able to pivot. You're going to have to do the, the market research from the ground up. And, and so what we did is we actually went and, and we asked people during, you know, our, our sit down interviews with people, we, we would uh, we would approach people that we believe don't play our game because of language issues or or um, you know uh, branding issues or story issues or gameplay issues, and we sit down with them and understand why they don't like the game or why wouldn't they play the game, and we would talk to hundreds and hundreds of people, and after that we can make a much more informed decision, and our informed decision on Conqueror was, yeah, if we get the story right, and if we simplify the rules even further, just a little bit more, uh, it is absolutely worth the investment. Um, after, you know, I think we talked to maybe 300 or 400 people about this. Well, okay. That, yeah, that gives you a much better idea than uh, just making a guess, you know, once you get that many consumers and kind of what they want. What would you buy is a wonderful question to be able to ask people specifically. But like you're saying, this is such uncharted territory, you know, we're just trying to figure out what this would look like, what it would be like. And as we get into the kind of next phase of the board game industry, as it does continue or as it, as it does go more and more global, more and more worldwide, as these other markets are being opened up, as more and more people are available, as economies around the world are improving to such a place where people have extra money to buy things like board games, which are not at all necessities. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to, to kind of see what happens. Now, do you have any advice as far as types of games? You know, I think a game like Codenames yeah. works yeah. really well because it's it's really just a system and then you can change the the, the content and the cards and the words and stuff like that. It makes yeah. it kind of easy. Yeah. Uh, and so any other ideas or, or advice as far as what kind of games would do well? I think maybe small games <laughs> would do yeah. well. That way you're not spending too much money. You know, you don't want to have this $100 game that then nobody buys. And so, yeah. But what else would you think or... or or games to think about for this kind of method. So, man, I, I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you top of games, and I'm also going to give you some, some, also some um, things that you can think about when you're designing your original game. As you mentioned, the size of the game. Um, so, so one major thing that I would I would definitely look at is reducing the text as much as possible. Um, if you have icons that can replace the text that's in the cards, or that's on the board, or that's in uh, on the manual, then you're going to spend less time, less cost, you know, using translators and so forth and so forth. So try to be as least text heavy as possible. And, and that will probably enhance your sales in your local market, right? People don't usually like to, to read a lot. Um, so, so that's, that's one major thing. Um, obviously size is another component. I would also think that when you're designing your original game, try to be diverse. I mean, think about, um, any new Hollywood movie. I don't know if you've noticed, but um, they try to make it a point to have kind of every ethnicity possible represented as part of the group, right? You always have um, uh, people from different backgrounds and different cultures represented, whether they're, you know, they could be a Muslim woman and, a, you know, a, and an Afri African-American man and, a, you know, a, 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 a white female. And, and they, they try to be representative as much as possible. I'm not saying they're perfect uh, in their movies. And so maybe it, it makes sense when you're originally doing the artwork to be representative with your artwork at a global scale so that when you come and localize, 
you don't need to relocalize the artwork because there's already someone that represents that that culture that you're trying to approach, right? If if there's already a Muslim woman in in your art pieces, um, you know you've already partially localized. You don't have to go all the way and and have Arabic men and Arabic women on on every single card if you're uh, if you're approaching the Middle East. Um, so that's that's one element is I think being inclusive at the initial design process, and that will reduce your your burden. Um, another thing is um, just having uh, you know. Uh, I would say strong brand guidelines. Something, you know, like, you know, that tick from McDonald's, you don't even have to see the M uh, that or, or that golden arch, right? It's so, um, so ingrained in people's heads that uh, it's quite easy to use that logo to represent your brand across, across different products. So if you're worried about brand disunity uh, or brand confusion, try to establish a really strong brand that, that you can, change the language for, but there's a, a resemblance of your brand there. In terms of the games that you want to hit, obviously small size. I've talked about what to do, reduce text, um, be inclusive with your artwork. And I would say, honestly, and, and this is something maybe people are not thinking about, going back to that sponsorship element, I think the board games that will do the best are ones that can attain sponsorship in local markets. Meaning, if you're someone who has done a board game on football, and, I, and when I say football, I don't mean American football. I mean, I mean so, what, what, what Americans call soccer. Um, you know, it's, it's a global sport. If you go and approach, I don't know, again, uh, China or the UAE or so forth, before you go through design process, if the game is really good, you can actually go to a club there um, you know, one of the famous clubs, and you can say, "Hey guys, you know, we have this football game. How about we, um, you know, distribute a game there with with your club's logo on on the box, or you know, your players being represented instead of, uh, you know, some international player." Um, if you're able to do that successfully, then you can attain that sponsorship revenue that will cover all your localization cost and more and, and you'll probably pocket um, more money so if you're looking at i would say sports games especially for international sports american football wouldn't work very well it's, it's not popular outside the u.s but um you know soccer uh even basketball is popular uh, uh you know um uh, certain sports that are that are, that are there you might want to look at anything educational Anything that, that has an educational spin could work. Anything that has real estate in it um, could, could work from a localization. So anything that resembles reality. Uh, if, if your product is about wizards and, and orcs and, and so forth, that's, that's probably not going to get much, much sponsorship from local companies. But I would, I would really encourage people who do that. I mean, Monopoly is a perfect case and an example of, of someone who can localize and, and make a lot of money out of it without even selling, selling a piece. Yeah. Another thing I've seen with a lot of games and just a lot of things in general, as far as avoiding, you know, people not recognizing the brand and things like that, is they'll keep the same title. Yeah. Right. So, for instance, my, my game in China will still be called Hunted, but then everything else about it is going to be in Chinese. Yeah. Uh, and so they'll keep the same name of, of you know, the Coca-Cola logo yeah. is the same no matter where you go. You know, it just might get pronounced a little bit differently uh, and it might not even be letters that that country uses. But a lot of times they'll still use the same brand, logo, colors and, and things like that. So it's more recognizable, just something else to, to keep in mind. Now, how in the world do I do this if I live, I don't know, in the middle of Honduras and I don't have access <laughs> like you do to all these different people in different languages? And, all, you know, I have access to Americans, Canadians. Uh, obviously Hondurans, and then uh, a handful of Danish people as well. It seems like Denmark sends their folks all over the world. I've met a lot of Danish folks. Uh, so I actually probably have more than the typical listener of the show as far as you know, cultures and languages and whatnot. But how in the world would I do it? How, does, how, do, how do you do this if you don't yeah. live in a place that's kind of conducive for it? Okay, so before I, I, I say that, there are two things that you have to keep in mind. One is if you are living in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K., or you're living in Honduras and there are a lot of Americans there, you actually have a wealth of diversity, right? Um, some, um, you know, uh, you have a lot of immigrants in the in the U.S. and the U.K. that you can benefit from, just like I do in, in the U.A.E. But even people who are, you know, naturalized um, citizens, you know, their parents might might come from a different culture, 
and um, you know they might have some knowledge into that. So you know don't discount where you come from. Um, I mean most most countries around the world today in 2020 have plenty of diversity. Um, the other thing is don't discount the power of of the internet, man. I mean I I didn't know anything about publishing board games, and I I got introduced to your podcast and you know a, a few blogs by some some famous uh, board game designers. And that I was able to connect with over the internet and, and learn so much, um, and it's helped me s- establish a you know a semi-successful company, I would say. Um, so you know, don't. I think <laughs> I think reaching out to people, especially I think most listeners here are probably part of your community in the board game design lab, and most of your listeners are probably in uh, many other groups, whether it's on Board Game Geek or Facebook groups or so forth. I would say just just connect with them, connect with the people there, and and be able to approach them and, and understand how their local market works and what works and what doesn't. Um, so that's that's something major that you should definitely not discount in terms of how you actually do it. I mean, the the beautiful thing about the board game industry is how helpful everyone is. So you know, I've mentioned about reaching out to people. Another thing is you know, if you're able to to visit these countries, then great, and that's that's amazing. Um, uh, the other, the, the final thing is, if you have an affinity to that country, then maybe that's a country that, or that's a culture that you want to focus on. So, you know, you mentioned Honduras, you know, um, when, when you're looking at, uh, at certain countries, let's say if I've lived in Venezuela for two years, or, uh, you know, let's not even, let's actually take a real life situation. When I, when I was in Oxford, most of my friends were from Latin America. Um, I know a lot of people there. And, um, and I visited them in Latin America and perhaps I might've lived there. Let's, let's say I did. Um, that's a market that I would be much more comfortable in approaching because I already have certain roots there. I already understand the language per se. I, I, I have a lot of friends there that can advise me. I have a, a lot of people there rather than trying to approach, let's say Congo, which I've never been to in Africa. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to start, who to, who to talk to. I don't have any con- you know, friends from, from Congo. And so I think you also, you know, the power of the internet is great and the diversity you have in, in your local country is great. But I would urge you to first identify a market that is easier for you to approach because of your background and because of your friends and your network and so forth. I think that's the key element there is, is try with, try the, the apple that's, that's easiest to pick. Right. Um, and then the other component is I wouldn't go gun ho on, on a particular localized market. So, you know, if I've, I found the right people and let's say I, um, I approach a particular person for a deal. And, and you can approach different people. You can approach a distributor, by the way. So uh, distributors can actually help localize content um, because they're invested in that. Uh, you can approach uh, local publishers, as you mentioned, uh, Gabe, which is something a lot of people do. Or you can you know, you know, can approach a, a partner. You can actually, if, if the Chinese market is important to you and you, you found someone that, that is, is, is smart and sharp and hardworking, who lives in China, who's passionate and has the same vision as, as you do, you know, cut him in. That's my advice. That's what I've, I've done um, on my climate change game. Uh, you know, I, I know a friend from the U.S. and I, I offered him a percentage of the revenue, of any revenue made in, in Western countries. And I got him on board and he's helped me um, uh, approach things from, a, from an international point of view. Um, so, you know, you don't have to go through a publisher. You can go through a, a traditional partnership. And the way you would structure that deal is a contract that's, it, that specifically mentions the product and the revenue share in which geographies that person would get a percentage of revenue share. Because you might be doing so well internationally, you don't want, you don't want to cut someone in when they haven't added any value. Uh, but you might not be doing well in China. And so you say... You know, I'm giving you 20% of the rev- of any revenues made in China. Now, 20% is too high. I'm, you're probably going to go anywhere from one one to five percent if they're not investing any money into it. Which brings me to my final point: is why not? Why not find another investor in China who can, um, you know, share part of the cost and accordingly share part of the revenue and share part of the profit. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many different avenues that can be taken and the internet makes it all possible. It's so easy now to connect with people all over the world. Uh, I just 
got an email just a moment ago from my uh, partner in China sending me a, a question about the contract that we're working through right now. <laughs> and so like that's, this is all instantaneous. The way the way things are now, it's just really cool times. Now, tell me what this does to your playtesting process. Like This has to change things. This has to affect it. So like, help me understand the kind of system that you have been working through, maybe some things you're trying to do in the future for playtesting. Man, that's that's uh, whew, that's a tough cookie to crack. Um, I've been fortunate again to to have a, a very diversified group of friends by the nature of my background of of living all over the place and having such a diverse population here. But um, you definitely, definitely, definitely have to play test a localized version. It's a it's a must, right? Um, before investing any further. Um, I already mentioned how you need to interview people before you even start the localization process and the design process. But let's assume that you've done so, you've localized. You need to bring those same people in and run the playtest that you guys have talked about extensively on these podcasts. I would uh, not be comfortable with anything less than 20 different groups in a particular location. Uh, now, if you don't have access to that particular customer in, in your home country. So if, you know, if there aren't many Chinese people in, 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 in the way or Chinese nationals in, in, in the country that you live in, um, then it, it's very important that you find that local partner in China who can carry out that playtesting for you. Um, and, and, and that works by cutting them in. So going back to my example on the climate change game, uh, the major responsibility, the reason why I was cutting someone in from the U.S. on any U.S. sales was his major responsibility would be taking the uh, game mechanics that I invented and, and, and the artwork. They, he would print it out in, in the U.S. as a prototype and he would game test it with 20 different groups, take notes, um, do the analysis and share it with me. Um, and in addition to that, he's a, he's a very smart guy. So what he'll, he'll do in addition to that is recommend any changes um, and, and, and help modify the game mechanics or, or suggest modifications to the game mechanics. Um, so if you don't have a game tester in that particular region, it is very important that, that you get in touch with one. And it goes through the same model that I talked about. It could be an individual that you cut them in, could be a publisher. I don't think distributors would be very keen on on playtesting. So I think you're, you're going to have to go with either a publisher or individuals who, who you trust. Yeah. Another thing I've seen a lot of publishers doing now is even if they're not localizing, even if it's just a game about a certain culture, especially if that designer is not from that culture, you know, they'll hire in a cultural consultant kind of person that'll come in and just read through the rules, read, you know, check out the game, play it, look at the art, that kind of thing. And then say, Hey, there's, here's some things to think about, you know, people in this part of the world might get a little offended about this or the way this character looks, or you might want to, you know, have more of this or less of that, but they can just give you the, the details about a culture or a language that you don't have any idea if you've never really been immersed in it uh, and live there. And I think that's another really smart thing to do. E even if, even if you're only going to have the game in English, right? But it's about something that has to do with the Middle East or has something to do with China or South America or something like that. It's great to have somebody from that culture to say, oh, don't do this. This is going to cause some controversy. Change this card, change this rule, or, or that kind of thing. That's actually great advice, Gabe. I, I, I mean, I haven't thought of a cultural expert per se. That's, that's uh, amazing. And I'll definitely implement that here. Um, I'll also mention one thing about this particular element. And, and this is something I haven't tried before. It's just an idea that maybe if someone tries, please contact me and let me know if it works. Um, can you actually do it through a conference call? Can you actually play test through something like Skype? Um, I'm just thinking out loud. If, you're, if you send something that players can print and it, it actually might be beneficial because you already have that count. You know, one of your episodes, you mentioned how important it is to, to record a playtest, right? Or I think one of your guests did. And, yeah. um, and, and this way, you're, you already have the camera there, right? Um, you can record it from, from your end of things. And you can actually introduce yourself, take them through the rules, and, and be in that room uh, from a virtual point of view and, and have people test it live. I mean... It is doable. Uh, I'm not sure if people have done it before. I'm sure someone has. But if you have done it from a localization point of view, let me know. I mean, that would be super interesting to try out. Yeah, definitely. Another thing is is Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia or any of these kind of online 
board game simulators where you yeah. upload all your files and your dice and all that kind of stuff. And then you could, any, you know, anyone around the world could play it. Yep. And so, you know, just, then you just have to find the right group to uh, play it with. And then, you know, you, you come in there as a spectator and that kind of thing. I think, God, I guess, again, there's so many different options right now. It's just going to be a matter of figuring it out and, and going through the process and, and spending the money, honestly, to, <laughs> to kind of figure some of these things out um, so that we can get into a, a world where, Games are more global, and, yeah. and, and we have more reach around the world. The, the final thing that, that also, sorry, I done, I've done, and I completely forgot to mention this, was uh, using tourists. So uh, part of my job, obviously, is to bring some brilliant teachers from around the world to the UAE to, uh, to teach uh, gifted children a very advanced content in science and math. Um, and that's just one of our programs. We, we bring in guests, guests and teachers and all kinds of people all the time. And part of our hospitality here in the region is, is to take people out or invite them to our house. And that's when I actually play test. Um, it's the perfect opportunity to, to do so with people who are visiting, um, who, who you have a relationship with, um, and uh, you know, who, who you're going to see either way and being able to do that. Uh, another element that we've once did was we've play tested with tourists. So, um, you know, Conquer is actually sold at the Louvre Abu Dhabi, which, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, and at the Louvre, there are millions of tourists. You know, the Louvre is one of the most famous museums in the world and, and millions of tourists visit there. And what we do is sometimes with the Louvre's permission, obviously, we can approach people there and say, you know, how long are you in the country? You know, are you interested in board games? Would you be willing to try out something that, um, you know, that, that, for example, will enhance awareness on climate change, for example, on, on the board game that I'm working on? And, and tourists are, are quite, um, you know, they, they love to do that kind of thing because it gives them an, a chance to interact with locals, to see what's going on. Uh, it, it seems like something that's very um, uh, spontaneous and, and a different experience that they can talk about when they go back home. Yeah. Again, it's figuring out what works where you live. And that's another really uh, great way to do it. Well, Mohammed, this has been awesome. And do you have any kind of closing thoughts, anything you want to leave people with as far as localization? Um, not really. I mean, I think just remembering those five major elements, um, language, story, artwork, gameplay, and what channels you use. If I think if you hit all five, you're not only increasing your sales per se, you're creating new board gamers. You're, you're, you're completely expanding the market, not just for you, but for everyone else. And I, I definitely think it's worth the investment. Definitely. Well, cool, man. Well, tell me, you know, give me like a little elevator pitch about some of your games, where people can find them. I think you got a little BGDL coupon as well. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I've talked about Conqueror Final Conquest. The exciting part is it was only sold in the Middle East and Asia for quite some time. And, and today we're announcing that it's being sold globally. Uh, so you can get your copy from our website. It's Conqueror FC, um, F-C, as in finalconquest.com. Um, if you like playing strategy and war games like me, um, you're really going to like this one. I, I can promise you that, especially if you like games set in, in ancient history. Um, it's, a, it's a gateway strategy war game set in the 3rd century BC, but it's not just about Rome and Carthage. It's about some amazing factions like Persia and Greece and Gaul that are all going through some incredible transformations. Um, what makes this game so great is its authenticity. Every detail, every art piece, every character, every bonus mission, every rule mimics this uh, fascinating reality. Um, you know, I said it's it's gateway. It's it's relatively easy to learn, but has so much depth. You can literally play it 500 times, which I probably have, and it'll play so differently every single time. And um, what's great about it is it, it combines some old mechanisms with some really novel mechanics that you haven't seen in any any other board game, uh, like the briber and, and timer mechanic uh, that I'm sure you'll all love. It runs for about an hour. It doesn't take too long. It might go up to two, but that's the extent of it. Um, it's very fun, um, intellectually stimulating. And um, I think you know it, it's a very important piece of history. This is the first strategy game ever produced by the region, by the Arab world. So it's, it's like a collector's item. And um, it's being sold right now at $69.99. If you use the promo code or coupon code called GABE, so G-A-B-E, uh, you'll get a 10% discount plus free shipping. 
Um, so, you know, that's, um, that's running for about 20 coupons that we have on the website. So get your copy before everyone else does. And I, I really hope you enjoy it as much as I loved uh, designing it and, and playing it. Awesome. Well, it sounds great. And uh, again, I appreciate you making me into a uh, coupon code. Not something I thought would happen, but uh, I appreciate it. I'm honored. <laughs> but anyway, mate, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Conqueror Final Conquest and, and good luck with all the, the just getting the, the word out about your games and going global and, and trying to do all these things we've been talking about and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?